Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Broadley from The Cloud Pod. In this series, we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry. Welcome to another fantastic episode of TCP Talks. How are you going today, Jonathan? It's great. I'm so excited to get Josh back again today. Yeah, Josh Stella is joining us again from Fugue, uh, where they have just released the State of the Cloud Report, uh, talking about the misconfigurations, challenges, and security issues all about uh, AWS and Azure with about 300 customers interviewed. So I'm really, really excited to have Josh on again. He joined us for episode 37 um, of uh, the main show. And so it's always good to have a guest come back. And Josh was a fantastic guest then and even better this time around. Yeah. Why don't you introduce yourself, Josh? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, you joined us back on episode 37 for the main show, and uh, we thought we'd have you back here on TCP Talks to talk about all things uh, cloud configuration. And uh, you guys have a fantastic report out, the State of Cloud Security 2020. And so we, uh, we'll definitely get into some of that here a little bit. But uh, maybe you can remind our listeners a little bit about what Fugue does and uh, kind of what your focus is. And if they haven't been familiarized with it before, let's uh, get them up to speed real quick. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, so Fugue is, well, I was uh, I was working at AWS uh, a number of years ago, and I saw that there was a real need for understanding and automating uh, security in the cloud, particularly around configuration of cloud resources. And so founded Fugue uh, with a good friend of mine. And what we do for you is, uh, and if, if, it's, if it's at a developer scale, it's free forever. It's just a service you can use for free. If you're at an enterprise scale, we do uh, ask you to pay us. Uh, what we will do is uh, examine your cloud environment and tell you if you are vulnerable to all manner of threats, way beyond the stuff that you know, AWS has in their service or other vendors uh, offer. Uh, we also will completely visualize and diagram your cloud environment for you, and we will allow you to write your own security policies using uh, industry standard open source open policy agent rather than uh, some proprietary language or some uh, Rube Goldbergian JSON file that you have to configure. So it's uh, F-U-G-U-E dot C-O, fugue dot co. And uh, I'm Josh at Fugue.co, and feel free to reach out to me. Awesome. You know, it's been interesting jumping into this a little bit. The cloud configuration and misconfiguration, as they like to call it, uh, which I just call mistakes. You know, it's been a problem for a while, and you know we've seen companies come and go uh, trying to solve this issue. Uh, you guys have a really great use case and story about how you want to solve this problem, and I love the visualization element of the product, uh, having played with it a few times. But the, you know, what what do you think is the big blocker for developers to really get to not making these type of mistakes? Boy, that's a great question. So effectively, the the, the short form of the answer is that the cloud is incredibly powerful and it's constantly changing and growing. And that combination means the ways you can hurt yourself are manifold, inobvious, and constantly in motion. So uh, our attitude at Few, we believe that security in the cloud, and particularly around you know configuration of resources, which is the main attack vector in the cloud, I think Gartner said something like 95% 
of cloud breaches are due to misconfiguration. Um, the, we believe that that is something that can only be solved using software engineering practices versus like security analysis practices. So what Fugue will do is as you're doing stuff in like your dev environment or even with our new open source project Regula, if you're using Terraform, uh, we'll check your infrastructure as code files to see if you're making mistakes. But then when you get in dev, we can check the actual first deployment of that. And we're going to return inf actionable information to the engineer saying, hey, you should... Uh, look again at this uh, default security group on this VPC. That's really not a good idea. And similarly, things like if you have misconfigured, which is kind of a loaded word, if you have configured your IAM policy and role association to some compute instance in a way that is risky, and that, by the way, may not be obvious at all. There are over, I think there's about 400 IAM permissions just for the EC2 service. And they are a graph of dependencies and not just within EC2, but across other servers. There are probably thousands and thousands of IAM permissions that form a dependency graph that can open up attack vectors. So our approach is the same way your compiler will tell you if you've done something wrong in a programming language, Fugue will tell you if you've done something wrong with your cloud security. And I think uh, back to your original question, why, why, aren't, why are developers still making these same mistakes? Well, imagine if you did not have a compiler or a debugger for programming and you just had to try to run stuff with no feedback. That's where people are with cloud security right now without Fugue. IAM policies, that's a really good example. And I think another gap, especially in AWS, is, is lack of documentation. It's really hard to find uh, the exact IAM rules you need to perform certain tasks. And when you start layering things like Terraform on top of it, it becomes very difficult to find the exact permissions that are required for Terraform to do a thing you want it to do. And so people tend to, to uh, abuse the, the, the asterisk in their policies out of necessity, I think, in part. I, you know, I, I'm glad you said that because I agree with you. Every time somebody hits the news for one of these cloud breaches, you know, the, the, the press are always out there saying, oh, they're dummies. I feel terrible for them <laughs> because it's hard. And as you pointed with IAM alone, I mean, if you just look at the right permissions for EC2 in IAM, it is baffling. I mean, I've been doing, I started working at AWS in 2012. I've been doing pure cloud since before then. I've been a software architect and programmer professionally since 1990. And it is a um, absolute maze. And, and that's not a criticism, right? I mean, I, I like the idea of having only a handful of verbs and a whole lot of nouns in an API, including IAM, right? So you've got only a few categories of stuff that uh, IAM permissions do, like, you know, listing, reading, writing, et cetera. But then the number of nouns is so vast, the number of single endpoints is so vast that wrapping your head around it is, is it's memorizing a phone book. It's, you're not going to be able to do it. This past year has seemed to have been um, a year of security tools from Google and Azure especially. Do you think, um, do you think that the rate of misconfiguration is, is going down or is it going up still with, with innovation? My experience is that it's going up. Um, I, I think every time a new service ships, uh, every time uh, a new feature is added to a cloud service, there is the potential for uh, unintentional misconfiguration that bad guys can exploit. And uh, therefore, um, the, uh, the, the, the rate of misconfiguration, if, if you consider it as how many cloud accounts exist with 
dangerously misconfigured resources as a percentage, I think that's going up. But I think it's also going up a lot as a population as cloud grows. So the, the field is very fertile uh, for bad guys using automation to find your misconfigurations, which is how they're doing it, and then um, exploiting those things. So do you think that the move to things like Amazon blocking public S3 buckets and these kind of very you know, very large controls to kind of prevent these problems. Do you think that actually is going to help solve this problem? Or do you feel that there continues to be a challenge of, you know, devs not understanding at the core level or operation people not understand the core level, what these permissions actually mean? Do you think it's a knowledge gap or do you think it is, it's just been too easy to cut yourself with a sharp edge? I think it's a tooling gap. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I'll go back to my, uh, to my analogy, my, uh, I, I guess it's an analogy to programming. Um, you know, years and years and years ago, my mother actually was a programmer at the Pentagon and would come home with a, an aluminum briefcase with a giant pile of accordion printer paper with hex dumps on it. And she would sit there with a red pen to find bugs. That was, that was her debugging process. Um, I'm dating myself here. This was in the eighties. Uh, <laughs> but I was a kid then. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Uh, but um, and that's kind of where we are now with cloud and security. You know, we're doing goofy stuff like relying on logs. Well, logs are great if you want to know how badly you've already been breached, but they're not really going to help you not get hacked. And so, to me, it's really a similar problem. Now we have. If you look at, I'm a big fan of Golang. We write a lot in Golang. Uh, the Golang language and tool stack, and people will argue with me about this because it famously didn't have a debugger for a long time. Uh, but uh, it, it, it is really good at telling you where you screwed up. And I think a lot of folks who don't write programs a lot have this wrong mental image of engineers and programmers. They think we're people who create this detailed mental model and then just uh, commit it uh, you know, uh, to, to code in one fell swoop. And maybe there are some programmers out there like that. I mean, Bill Joy famously could do that kind of thing, but most of us are not like that. Most of us are trying stuff and our tools are telling us where we're forgetting things or getting things wrong. And that's how security should work too. And that's exactly what, what Fugue does. So I think it's a tooling gap. I think it's a fundamental problem, not one that's solvable with uh, more accreditations and courses and knowledge. It's it's gonna be. It's here. It's gonna remain. It's gonna get harder. I like the analogy of programming actually because although it's it's relatively easy to pick up a language to actually use it effectively is years and years of experience following uh, software development patterns. Um, it's not something that you can you can learn from a book. I don't think. Well, yeah. I mean, yes, certainly. But 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 in addition to that, I totally agree with everything you just said. But in addition to that, that years of experience, a lot of it is your tooling educating you, you know, how do you, uh, you know, cast a, a, a variable to another type in Java is different than, you know, doing so in another language. And the tooling will tell you, you know, you, you didn't cast that properly. You can't multiply that integer by that string. That's, that's not okay. Um, well, we need the same thing for security. Uh, you should not leave. Uh, you should not allow an EC2 instance to be role associated to an IAM policy that allows changing of EC2 role associations. It's extremely dangerous. But if the tooling isn't telling you that, it's really easy to say at the top of the documentation, make sure to use least permissive. 
And by the way, here are your 27,000 permissions you may or may not want to grant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've tried very hard to, to get NGOs to, to come up with least privileged policies for deployments especially. And I think they spend more time on the policies than they do actually writing the product. A couple of years ago now, I was standing in line at the airport. I, as I said, I used to work at AWS and I'm, I'm right down the road from uh, the main you know, AWS US East and Herndon and HQ2 and all that. And so whenever I'm flying out to things like reInvent or whatever, um, it's, I'm mostly in line with AWSers, right? It's just the airport here, Dulles Airport, is full of AWS folks. And I overheard two folks, uh, I, I don't know their names, I, uh, they came on board long after I left, talking about how hard it was <laughs> to get IAM right. <laughs> so you're not alone. If you're out there listening to this, uh, the folks uh, that built this thing also struggle with it. Why isn't there a good language to, you know, it's, there's many programming languages to do things. Why isn't there a good language to describe security as code? Oh, boy, uh, that hits close to home. So Fugue actually wrote a, uh, we, we have since dropped it because people wanted to use JSON files, which uh, has always <laughs> amazed me. But um, it, we actually wrote a language, which was a, a, a strongly typed pure functional language that could analyze your configurations literally at compile time prior to deploying them and catch errors. Uh, that didn't catch on. Uh, so we've, we've, people wanted to use Terraform, they wanted to use CloudFormation, like I said, they wanted to use these kind of JSON templates. So what we're doing now is um, there is a really cool project, open source project that Fugue has adopted, and I think we're operating it maybe at a larger scale than just about anyone. Um, it's called Open Policy Agent. And we're doing north of a half a billion policy evaluations a day for our customers now using Open Policy Agent. We actually have contributed quite a bit to it and made it a whole, whole lot faster because we're operating it at such scale. But the way Open Policy Agent works, it has a language called Rego. I don't know why they called the language a different thing than the project, but Rego, R-E-G-O, it's part of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation now. It's a declarative policy language. It's a domain-specific language uh, that uh, really is sort of, it's, it's like a declarative query language where you can assert passes and failures. So it's kind of like putting predicates on your security posture with Fugue. And that's, that's how we use it. Uh, so if you're using Fugue, you can use a, a real language. We actually put out a, a couple of projects on GitHub one is called Regula that I mentioned earlier, and it will use Open Policy Agent to test your Terraform config files. Now, keep in mind that if you're just looking at an infrastructure as code file, you're only going to catch about 20%, maybe, maybe 30% of the problems you're going to end up with from a security perspective because there are all kinds of side effects of the APIs. Uh, but that's out there, Regula, github.com slash fig slash Regula. And you can just download and use it with Terraform. And we also put a project out called Frego, which is the Fugue Rego toolkit, which includes like a debugger and breakpoints and all kinds of developer tools. So there is a language out there that is gaining tons of popularity now that um, will allow you to check all kinds of things for uh, security, whether it is, and it'll read any JSON file. Um, so if, if, if you use it the right way, you can interrogate those JSON files, those data structures, and find out if they're safe or not. We put a bunch of um, CIS benchmark stuff out there in Regula, so you can check for cloud configuration with CIS benchmark with Regula. 
And then Fugue has just hundreds and hundreds of these um, of these checks built into our product. Awesome, check that out. So moving over to your report, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about like what's the methodology. What type of people did you survey and, and how did you guys kind of come up with the audience for the report to then kind of lead into the questions you guys asked? We do this every year and hire a company who does this for a living. And our criteria are you have to be operating at scale. And by at scale, we mean, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of cloud resources on uh, public cloud providers. And they go and capture, I think this time we had over 300, last time we had over 300 of these organizations, or this time it was maybe a little less, maybe like between 100 and 200, something like that. Um, but these are organizations that are operating, you know, that are true cloud practitioners that are operating at scale. And then we ask them a number of questions. Uh, a lot of this is just for our own understanding of what challenges people face. And of course, this year when we were doing this, right as we kicked it off, uh, COVID hit. And COVID definitely has had an impact on how people are using cloud. So we surveyed people on things like, you know, um, additional security risks in cloud due to suddenly remote workforces and things like that. How do you think that the COVID uh, answers started to change the rest of the report? Do you think it had a big impact on the report or do you think it mostly just focused on some of the concerns around distributed teams? So most of our questions remained the same. We only added a few about remote work and so on, because, you know, if you're used to being a distributed organization uh, and, and Fugue, for example, are, you know, we have uh, some, you know, very specialized developers like compiler engineers and, you know, language designers and things like that who work in Europe or other places. We're used to it. But a lot of enterprises weren't used to it and they were relying on traditional uh, kind of uh, uh, perimeter hardening kinds of approaches around things like corporate lands and accessing cloud resources only from those locations and that kind of thing. And all of a sudden they were confronted by this new world, right? Where like, you know, their employee sitting at their home office has to be able to do administrative work on their, their cloud footprint. And what does that mean? So we added a couple few questions. Um, you know, I was kind of surprised by this one. We asked, uh, is your team transitioning to 100% distributed? And 83% of companies said yes, right? That would have probably been half that at most outside of COVID. And then we asked, are you concerned about cloud security during the transition? And 84% said yes. So even more than we're making the 100% transition. So um, I, I think a lot of it is like the unknowns. Um, you know, if you've been approaching security from that old school data center, you know, hardened perimeter and then defense in depth and, you know, using TCP IP network permissions and boundaries. And now all of a sudden you're much more concerned about like, well, we were talking before IAM permissions and things like that. Um, that's, that's a, that's a pill. That's a mouthful. Yeah, I think we're pretty lucky in this in this whole thing because we come from a highly regulated industry to begin with. We already have the infrastructure in place for secure access to resources in data centers and in the office. I can imagine there's 
a lot of organizations that, that either didn't have that because they didn't need it or they didn't have that because they have even more strict requirements um, to, for access. I mean, I, I saw a news article about how uh, NASA engineers are controlling spacecraft from their home computers. It's, it's quite funny. That's kind of awesome too, though, right? Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think uh, one of the big analyst firms, I won't name names because this was like a um, them just talking to us, but they said their inquiries, a major analyst firm, about cloud security posture management, which is what kind of what Fugue does has now been called for better or worse, uh, has gone up threefold since COVID hit. And, and I think that shows how many organizations are really, one, moving more stuff to cloud now, and two, uh, suddenly very concerned about their security posture in the cloud. Um, and again, I'll say to the, to the listeners of the show, there is a forever free version of Fugue. So if you, if you want to understand at like developer scale, like, you know, you're in your dev account, I think it's like 1500 cloud resources or less, you can just use Fugue for free and forever. And, and please do so that you can understand, even if you never pay us, so that you can understand um, what, what these risks are, particularly if you're, if you're new to this. So one of the interesting statistics you had in here was uh, that basically, you know, 84% of people are concerned they've been hacked and don't know about it. And then 28% already have been hacked and knew about it. Uh, it's interesting how dramatically different those two numbers are. And, you know, how many of these people uh, haven't been hacked and don't know it? <laughs> and then how many of them haven't hacked and do know it? You know, there's, there's a bit of a gap there on the other side of this question, too, which I, I don't know how well that shows it. But, uh, you know... It's always so weird to me when they start talking about this desire to know if you've been hacked. Well, knowing if you've been hacked requires a very large amount of threat hunting and intelligence analysis to determine. So it's really fascinating to me, this this answer and how people kind of looked at it. I, I will say that I believe the vast majority of cloud breaches are unknown to the people who have been breached. That is my opinion. I don't have... Uh, particular data to back it up, but it, it is not uncommon to hear about in the news, for example, an organization being breached and only learning about it months after the fact. Well, there's a reason for that. As you point out, it's really hard to know. And if you're particularly if you're looking for things like stealing data at a S3, I mean, what's S3's job? What's its reason for existing is to m serve massive amounts of parallel uh, get requests, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like a fourth of the internet or something at this point, S3. So it's really good at just pushing data out really fast. And so when you look at your logs, there's a lot there. And if, if you're using S3, a lot of people are going to be doing those gets. And what does a breach look like? Some gets. So I, I think a lot of folks don't know they've been hacked that have. Um, you know, these are not obviously 84 and 28 add up to greater than 100. So these are not exclusive answers. It's not either or. It's, you know, you answer both questions. 28% uh, have already been hacked and know it. I mean, when you, when you think about the breaches that we learn about in the news and uh, that we have things like DOJ filings on and, you know, details, more often than not, the way bad guys are attacking cloud infrastructure is by using automated tools to go look for any vulnerability 
and then the hacker gets up in the morning and gets a cup of coffee and looks at the 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 menu of companies their automated tools found that are vulnerable and then says, oh, you know, this one looks cool. I'll go breach so-and-so. When you think about that for a moment, uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, who does uh, a lot of, uh, you know, red teaming and that kind of work told me that um, uh, on average, when an IP address uh, or, you know, DNS record or IP, when an endpoint becomes exposed to the public internet, on average, it takes less than seven minutes for bad guys to have found it and scanned it for vulnerabilities. So if that's the case, I suspect a great many more people have been hacked than know it. Mm. It's uh, When I read that slide, I thought it reminded me of the uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the things you know you know and the things you know you don't know. <laughs> Unknown unknowns. <laughs> yep. But the, um, I mean, sometimes I think so uh, certificate transparency is something that kind of annoyed me recently. Well, that's probably a couple of years old now, whereby any publicly signed SSL certificate is added to a registry. And people, can, people bad guys, whoever can, can sit and literally just watch new endpoints pop up as people register their SSL certificates. So I, it's, it's sometimes what the things we do to try and make things better actually end up becoming vectors for, for further attack. I agree with you. However... Uh, obscurity is never a good security posture, right? I, 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 I personally believe that you should assume every aspect. I mean, I used to work in national security environments where like network diagrams, you know, couldn't be left on a desk or you'd get fired and things like that. And I used to think, okay, that that's fair. You know, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to have like, I don't know, um, some insider come by and take a phone picture and, you know, bring it home with them or whatever uh, and and sell it on the internet. However, if you can't secure your infrastructure against somebody who knows all of its details. So, you know, at Fugue, when we hire folks to red team us, we tell them everything about our infrastructure. (laughs) We just, we just explain to them how we've built the thing. Uh, because we don't we don't want discovery to be we don't want obscurity to be the deciding factor because that could actually blind us to real vulnerabilities. Now it so happens that as I said earlier we're exceptionally paranoid and um, it, it's funny we put these bounties out and and I think the most anyone has ever collected as part of the the bounty program you know even when we hire people and we pay them on a per uh, a per vulnerability kind of basis uh, was like a 20th of what the overall bounty budget was. So I think we're doing okay. But uh, I believe if, 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 if you think that people not knowing something about your system is going to protect you, you're wrong. Now, that said, I'm going to contradict myself here uh, and say you should put as many barriers to them knowing about your system as, <laughs> as you can. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. bad guys have to do discovery too. And just uh, for the audience, like if I could if I could leave you with one thought, make sure that none of the IAM policies that are in use in your production environments have list or describe privileges to anything. That's actually exceptionally dangerous to have out there for the reason you just gave. Because, you know, commands like S3 sync require S3 list permissions. Read permissions, of course. Write permissions, of course. List permissions, describe permissions, really, really scary. Yeah, that reminds me. We need to check up on the uh, the state of the Capital One 
situation. Yeah, I have no, I have no um, inside knowledge of that. You know, I have friends over there, and and they're exceptionally good engineers, and um, I, you know, I think they do cloud ex- extraordinarily well. And when you see something like that happen, uh, you have to realize, you know, going back to the eighty-four percent of people who are worried that they're they're hacked and they don't know it, and twenty-eight percent that are hacked and know it. I mean. Now, those are two separate questions, but if you add them together, <laughs> it's over 100 percent. So, uh, you know, um, I, I don't have any like follow up on that. The last I saw on it was the DOJ uh, uh, documents. But um, if they can make a, a, a minor misconfiguration that leads to something like that, everyone listening to this probably has worse misconfigurations or at least as bad misconfigurations. It's interesting when you talk about those misconfigurations. If you were to ask me, you know, what's the number one misconfiguration uh, in AWS, it would be you know public S3 buckets because it's the one that gets the most press. Um, it's actually interesting in the survey, you have a, a much different answer for that. Forty-four uh, percent said security group rules, forty percent said IAM, and then thirty-six said encryption at rest disabled or never enabled. Uh, and 33% encryption and transit disabled. Uh, that's kind of shocking to me that uh, both security group rules and identity and access, uh, well, that one doesn't surprise me as much, but security group rules does surprise me a bit because that one, of all of the tra- of the concepts that we translated from on-premise to cloud, the concept of a firewall <laughs> seems to be the one that people would understand the best. Uh, but yet the, the data says otherwise, which is really interesting. How do you feel about that one? Um, well, I think our uh, respondents are really smart and know what they're talking about. So security groups are, are, are conceptually similar to firewalls, but they're quite different, actually. The notion of security group as firewall is sort of a, uh, a skewmorph. It's like when uh, the iPhone came out and, you know, the, the I forget which app, it, the, maybe it was the calendar or something. that had like wood grain on the sides and eventually that went away. The concept of a firewall is different than the concept of a security group. A security group is is aptly named. So these are, um, you know, used well. You're not going to be doing a whole lot of TCP IP based ACLs on security groups. You're going to be doing trust relationships between those security groups, right? So security group A is uh, allows ingress on a port from security group B. And then stuff gets put in these groups and those define those trust relationships. Well, very often security groups are shared in an organization. So what happens if you have two teams that both have administrative access to the AWS API surface console, et cetera, and they're both mutating security groups, you can get unintended mutation in other parts of the system that you weren't considering. That's one very real thing that happens. Um, and, and when I've seen organizations with literally thousands of security groups, well, good luck keeping track of that, right? Like, <laughs> and where are they in use and how many are even not in use, but could be assigned to something, right? So there's all kinds of dangers around security group management. Uh, never mind things like maintenance windows where often uh, controls get relaxed with the intention to um, uh, constrain them again, or uh, heaven forbid, somebody believes that the CloudFormation template or Terraform code that first created the security group is reflective of how it is in the actual environment when actually it's been out there and gotten mutated through some other method. So it it, it gets hairy in, in at, at scale in in, in practice. 
Um, I don't see. I mean, I think the press gets the public S3 bucket thing wrong a lot. I, I, I couldn't give you stats on it. But usually when I read about, oh, somebody left an S3 bucket insecure. In most cases I've investigated, it does not appear that they just had a wide open public bucket. It's that the attackers got access to the data using leveraging other services that had access to the bucket, often through IAM or, you know, inadequate S3 bucket policies, which are, you know, if, if you try to control IAM and just trust that your IAM rules are being followed, um, you're going to get hacked. Uh, you have to assert things like bucket policies, too, to, to give you, you know, overrides to that, if you will. I think the biggest error I've seen in security root configurations, and that probably stems from tutorials that people have followed when they're, start, when they're first starting out in cloud, almost certainly the examples have the security group allowing access on all ports from members of itself. So if you've got web servers, web servers can listen to the world on port 80 and they can talk to each other on whatever ports they like. And of course, we get these massive groups for administrative access to servers, which gives them RDP or SSH or you know Windows remoting or whatever the case may be. And then somebody accidentally leaves one line in there which says and anyone in this group can talk to anybody else on all ports which means that you, you may as well have zero security uh, at that point because you, you just open the floodgates and it's such an easy thing to miss oh man i'm so glad you, you brought that up um that's very true and there's lots of places where you know um i i think aws and the cloud providers in general the the you know hyperscalers at least the ones i know well um, really do. When they say they take security as the first uh, a priority, I believe that's true. Um, I have lots of reasons to believe that's true. I'm confident that's true. However, there's an asterisk on that. And it's, it's not a disingenuous asterisk, right? But it is something you have to be aware of in the shared security model, which is the typical default configurations and tutorials are designed to get you up and running quick. They're designed for convenience, not for leveraging all the security aspects. Because I mean, we were talking about it before, right, on IAM roles. So, like, let's say you try to do a, 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 you know, least permissive IAM role, least privileged IAM role, and you start adding, you know, the AWS docs say, don't, don't start broaden narrow, start narrow and broaden. Okay, that sounds good. But what if, for example, you don't have permission to have decrypted error messages coming back for why you don't have permission to do something? which actually happens, um, you know, so, and this is why, as you pointed out before, you get the star, right? Or why does AWS give you a default security group with egress to world on all ports? Because that makes it faster to get something running. Um, and, and I think people underestimate the amount of effort and knowledge that is required in the shared responsibility model of them. And, you know, I think AWS tries to and, and others try to disabuse people of this uh, kind of uh, rosy delusion that AWS will handle it for you. Well, actually, AWS are giving you tools that are capable of doing the most secure kinds of computing. Same with Microsoft, same with Google that we've ever known. But you have to do it right. Yeah, the, the easy button's great when you start out, but you just need to make sure that people understand that it was an easy button. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that's why we exist as a company is that this is a, a really complex problem space, right? Every time you add something new into the mix, like, you know, what was it, maybe 18 months ago, 24 months ago, it kind of started hitting the news that a default Elasticsearch installation 
would uh, uh, you, that you had to uh, assert that uh, authorization was needed to hit an, uh, an Elasticsearch cluster. I'm no longer I'm not sure if that's true any longer, but at one point in time that was true. If you just kind of default stood up Elasticsearch, and I don't mean the service necessarily, I, I mean the actual open source project. It would allow anyone access to anything if its port was open, and a bunch of data got stolen in exactly this way. So, you know, Fugue will do things like look for default Elasticsearch or I think Redis to, you know, any, any of those kinds of tools, uh, any open ports to internet, we're gonna flag on that and say, hey, you should go look at this. This is, this is potentially scary. You might be using this for, you know, your application servers or your microservices to do fast queries in the runtime, but do you really want that port open to the world? Uh, other than uh, using a tool like Fugue, how, how a team is actually working to prevent misconfigurations? Uh, I mean, manual reviews is one thing, but they're so easy to, it's so easy to miss things. What we see is a lot of organizations thinking this isn't as big a problem and as complex and deep a problem as it is, and trying to roll their own stuff or use a kind of feature-limited open source project out there. Uh, we see a lot of folks thinking that doing things like log analysis from CloudTrail is really going to help them here, uh, which it isn't. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it might tell you the bad news, <laughs> but it's not going to keep it from happening. Um, so, you know, uh, you know that, that's a tough question for me because I, I founded a company because this problem wasn't being solved adequately. So, uh, so you know, and, and hey, that's why we made a, a free version, right? Is, uh, yeah, we want to get paid by the enterprises that use us at scale, like, you know, SAP and others that are, are you know, awesome, wonderful customers. But we also want every cloud engineer out there to get better at this. And um, you can get a, a whole lot of um, uh, help with that with very, very little lift. That's great. So, you know, we talked about IAM a few times, and I know you guys do Azure as well. Uh, maybe you're going to do Google in the future as well. D do you see that the IAM implementations for Azure are better or worse? Or how do you see, you know, their second mover to the market, you know, Amazon being first? And so a lot of their IAM challenges, I, I sort of feel, are related to the fact they were the first ones to try to do it. Uh, Azure kind of had that chance to be number, you know, to redo it. And we've seen Google as kind of the third big player kind of taking the lessons from both Azure and AWS and kind of doing something completely different, which is also great. So how do you see that looking uh, across these clouds as you look at it from your perspective? Well, you know, they, they all have very different design philosophies, I would say. And, and I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. Um, at any of this stuff, to be honest. Uh, yeah, we, we support AWS and Azure now. GCP's coming soon. Um, my own personal opinion is that working with AWS is a whole lot like being, uh, you know, it's kind of the Unix philosophy, right? Make small tools and connect them. And they all end up being somewhat idiosyncratic, right? They all end up being a little different. And IAM is kind of the glue that connects most of these particularly high order services, by which I mean, like not lift and shift style, you know, replacements for kind of VMware data center models. But when you look at things like, you know, DynamoDB or, uh, you know, other, you know, we use a ton of Lambda and step functions and things like that. Um, IAM really becomes the network. Uh, but each of these services were designed by two pizza teams, right? And so that's a very Unix philosophy, right? You know, um, you've got a, 
a pile of tools that you can assemble into things. Uh, but there's a high expectation that um, you learn their idiosyncrasies. And there, there, I mean, there are huge benefits to that. I, I think it's a really cool model in a lot of ways. When you look at what Azure have done, and uh, you know, Azure's a, a different animal, in my opinion, has very much more of a consistent architecture. And when you look at things like Azure Resource Manager, although somebody will probably kill me for saying this because Azure Resource Manager isn't always 100% covering everything, but when you look at what they've tried to do with things like Azure Resource Manager, there is a more consistent set of APIs and understanding of how things relate to each other in terms of the resource graph and so on. And you see that reflected in their security tools that they have a more uniform, it's more like Windows, right? It's more like a walled garden. Um, AWS is a bit more Wild West. Uh, now I'm a Unix guy, so that will probably um, tell you where my biases lie. Um, but you can you can hurt yourself just as bad on Azure. <laughs> you know, you can. Um, I don't think that they are one better than the other. I think they're different. And I think they require a different way of of reasoning about them and understanding the problem space you're confronting. Do you think we will ever get to a place where we don't need to worry about security as much? Or do you think it's just inherently uh, going to be a problem because of the, the rate of change of, of services and, uh, and, and education of consumers? So I believe strongly that uh, computer security is largely a solvable problem technically, but an irresolvable problem in the market. If you look at what, you know, I mentioned earlier, Fugue wrote an, a formal language for defining cloud infrastructure that could be proved safe prior to deployment, but people wanted to use JSON files. So maybe I'm a little bitter about this, but I, I think that, and if you look at the history of programming languages, right, which ones, there are safe programming languages. There are safe ways to write applications. I mean, relatively safe, but a whole lot safer than C, right? <laughs> but what did the market do? It went for the thing that was the most expedient, most familiar, most popular. And so I think that um, it is possible, and, and we know how, to build truly safe systems, but human behavior will prevent it from ever becoming the dominant pattern is my my assessment. Sorry, that was depressing. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think it's a very honest answer and I, I sort of agree with what you have to say about that. Security is hard in many ways and it's also programmatic in others. And I think we, we continue to evolve and get better at it and we'll continue to find new ways that we can get exploited as well. So I, I think it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the, what I would like to share with folks is consider for a moment that the cloud is not remote data centers. The cloud is a giant distributed computer, and you can treat it as such. A data center, you could not do API calls to understand the configuration of every item on that data center floor, despite the fact that you know there were attempts at, at doing that. They always failed because you had multiple vendors with competitive reasons to not, to not do that and different you know, configuration languages and so on and so forth. But in the cloud, you can do that. And therefore you can fully reason about a cloud infrastructure environment, just like you would any other computer program. And that's actually the design philosophy Fugue took, is we, we build a complete in-memory model 
of the entire configuration of a system, and then we can perform computation against it. In the same way a computer program gets resources, you know, uh, CPU, I.O., memory, etc., cetera, uh, your cloud configurations can be reasoned about by programs in that same way. And therefore, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it needn't be a train. Um, <laughs> it, it could be a bright, sunny day. But uh, to do that, every person developing on cloud needs to have the tools and desire to understand, in the same way they understand programmatic correctness, to understand security correctness. Uh, and for the first time, that's doable. And that's super cool. That's great. So if uh, our listeners would like to check out the Fugue State of the Cloud report, where would they find that on your website? Yeah, if you go to, let's see, where's the front door to that guy? I believe it is on www.fugue.co slash blog. And you'll see a posting there. And hopefully you guys can put this in the notes. I'll send you the link uh, of a blog post by my co-founder and our head of communications, Drew Wright called the State of Cloud Security 2020 Report. We give you a summary there. Um, you can get the report just by clicking the link and giving us your contact info and download it there. It's a pretty thorough PDF. Uh, yeah, that's where you can get it. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you for coming and joining us here on TCP Talks. Always a pleasure to have you, Josh. And uh, hopefully we'll have you here again on the show. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Visit thecloudpod.net to subscribe to the show, join our Slack channel, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find information on reaching our audience through a CloudPod sponsorship opportunity. A big thank you to today's guest, and thank you for listening.